Our New Testament reading comes from Revelation chapter 20. We'll be reading verses 1 through 15. So hear the word of the Lord. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the Word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image, and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the word of the Lord. If you were to ask, say the twenty greatest conservative evangelical Bible scholars in the entire world. If you were to ask them to name the five most difficult chapters in all of Scripture, 
Revelation chapter 20, I assure you, would be on all their list. It may not be one. It sometimes would be five, but it would be on their list. Uh, we started this passage last Sunday. I listened to a lot of sermons in preparation for my preaching uh, from people like Eric Alexander, Sinclair Ferguson, R.C. Sproul. And I was amazed at how many of the ministers preached through Revelation 20 uh, in one sermon. And I can't do that. I'm sorry. I just can't. Uh, there's so much here. So we've broken it down into four. If you were not here last Sunday, I encourage you to go to our website and listen to it. And you'll make the connection immediately. I'm going to say a bit about it this morning. But you'll understand it. Remember, our goal is not just that I preach and teach from this passage. Our goal is that you will be able to leave this place when we're through. And when you go back to a specific chapter and you read it with your husband, with your wife, with your children, or with your parents, that you yourself will be able to say, I can tell you what that chapter means. I can't. That's what I'm after. I'm not after it to say, well, I preached through this book now. I'm after it that you might know, that we might know together what this teaches. So this task before us uh, last week and this week and the next two weeks, it's a formidable task. And it means that we must apply ourselves to it. I hope you're reading this during the week. So more than ever, before we open to the 20th chapter, let's pray. John Sartell cannot teach this passage so that it will make any difference in your life, but the Father can in the power of his Holy Spirit. So let's talk to him about it. Let's pray together. Our Father, immediately at hand, as your priests, all of us, a congregation of priests at Christ's Covenant Reformed Church this morning bow before you, and we pray for our friends for our brother and sister in Christ, Phil and Sally Halley. Father, you've answered our prayers in so many ways during these last few weeks. And we pray that there would continue to be improvement. Father, help us to be bold in our prayers, to know that all things are possible with you. And we teach us to pray that, Father, he would be healed completely, that he would be restored completely. We thank you for the progress that has been made. But as that happens, our Father, there's a need in that home uh, for help in so many ways. And Father, it's what a privilege it is. And we pray that you'll move across this congregation and we will undergird that family undergird Phil and encourage him, undergird Sally and encourage her. Our Father, bless in this way. We pray, Father, this morning for the ministry of Alan and Ann Cochet in France. You know their every concern. You know more than they do what needs to be done. We pray your richest blessings upon them. Shower them, Father. We pray that you would build a hedge around them. We are in a secular society 
in the United States and in Europe. In many ways, it's the culture of the Antichrist. We pray that you would bless Alan and Anne to stand firm. Set them on fire with your Holy Spirit that they might warm and set afire the hearts of others. Now, as we open your word this morning, we pray that you would teach us here. Father, this is not empty rhetoric. It's the truth. John Sartell cannot teach so that it will make any difference. And we pray this morning in this room, in this sanctuary, we will hear your voice in the power of the Holy Spirit. Enlighten us when we walk away this morning. May we say, I understand those first three verses. And what a blessing. That's our prayer, Father, in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Who is with Christ in glory now? Last week, we looked at the first three verses of Revelation chapter 20. We entitled those verses, The History of Satan from the Incarnation to the Return of Christ, Part 1. We asked three questions about the scene that we saw in these three verses. The first question was, what does the 1,000-year period mean? Secondly, what does the binding of Satan mean? Thirdly, what and by whom was Satan bound? First, we understood a thousand years was merely symbolic of a very long time. Sometimes we say when we're looking at a huge task, we say that'll take a thousand years. Now, we hadn't counted up the years and looked at them and said measured the job to be done and come up with a thousand. No, we were just saying, hey, it's going to take a long, long time. That's the way the word is used here. What does the binding of Satan mean? He begins with the sight of an angel. Remember, descending from heaven with a key to the abyss and also with this great, incredible chain. Now, the abyss and chain are symbols. There's no physical chain that could hold Satan. Satan is a spiritual creature and is bound by a spiritual force. So what do the abyss and the chain, what do they symbolize? Well, when one is chained, when one is jailed, he is restrained. He is inhibited. This passage, these first three verses, are not saying that Satan was destroyed. He was limited in what he could do. His power for this period of time was held in check. Did Satan's power continue during this time? Yes, but his power is limited. Well, then why and when and by whom was Satan bound? We learned that Satan's power and rule on earth were restrained. What was the reason? So that the church of Christ would grow to the ends of the earth. You know, you think about it. Jesus told those, that motley crew of disciples, you're going to take my gospel and you're going to the ends of the earth. There's no part of this earth that gospel is not going to go to. Do you look at this motley crew? Do you think they're really going to do that? I mean, it's impossible. Especially with Satan as the opposition. So he was restrained so that his church would grow, so the church of Christ would go to the ends of the earth. 
We saw and heard, and you really need to listen to it, we saw and heard Jesus in the Gospels speak of Satan being bound and restrained. He talked about it in the Gospel. We read those passages last week. So he was restrained by Christ, the Son of Man, and the Son of God through his incarnation, the God becoming flesh, through his cross, and through the power of his resurrection. Now, Satan's reign and his power were not eradicated. We could list evidence of that from Nero in the first century to Mao Zedong, the satanic Mao Zedong, in the 20th century. But if he had not been restrained, Satan would have torn the church to shreds throughout the world. Now, that summarizes the first three verses. Now, if you skip down to verse 7, John returns again to the story of Satan. But in between, in between verses 3 and 7, John tells us of another sight. He suddenly says, then I saw, and he begins to explain a vision that has nothing to do with Satan. It's just like it's interlude. Then you go back to verse, you come to verse 7, and he takes off exactly where he left off with verse 3. So when you read it this week, read it that way. Verses 4 through 6 are kind of interlude, but it's an interlude that we desperately, the church is always desperately needed to see. In verses 4 through 6, we will see this morning that God gives John a review an overview of what was happened, what has happened with the saints, with the followers of Christ. What happened to them during this thousand-year period? What happens to the saints? What happened to them? They fought the good fight. Some of them were martyred. Some of them were jailed. Some of them were tortured. Some of them weren't. But they've passed on. What happened? What happened to the saints who fought the battle during this messianic age, during the church age, during the thousand-year period. That's our subject this morning. You see, John sees a second vision concerning the thousand years. And that vision, he describes for us in verses 4 through 6. The vision he pictures, in in the vision he pictures what is happening in heaven with the believers during the Messianic age. Between the ascension and the return of Christ, where do saints go? Where are they? Now, we've seen glimpses. We've seen glimpses of those who have died. And like they are in this passage, they're in glory with Christ. And we've already seen it in Revelation three times. He's just interrupted. It's always an interlude. He just interrupts what's ever happening. And he gives us a snapshot of the saints in heaven. In Revelation 6, 9 through 10, we saw the souls of the saints in heaven who had been martyred, who had died for Christ. They were pictured as being under the altar. The altar was a place of sacrifice. And so, and, and so this was a picture not... They didn't die as a sacrifice for their own sins. Only Christ could do that. That's what we're celebrating this morning. But they were sacrificed to the glory of Christ. They sacrificed their lives for Christ, for their faith. And they were crying out. They were praying for justice. In chapter 7, 
We saw the saints who had died on earth, and they were in, in heaven. They weren't under the altar. They were singing. They were singing to the glory of God, a great choir. And then in chapter 14, we saw a great congregation of the people who had died. And they were standing with Jesus, actually standing with him, singing hymns of redemption. They die physically, but their souls are in glory. That's the picture. Now, this is certainly, that's a picture we have in Revelation. But it's also the picture that we see throughout the New Testament. Jesus made an incredible statement. And the longer I look at this passage, uh, the deeper. I haven't fathomed it yet. I've been looking at this passage for 50 years. And I haven't come near really, really getting it. But look at John eleven twenty five. You know, Lazarus has died. And Jesus was away when he died. And Lazarus, he was real close. He was like a brother to Jesus. And Lazarus had two sisters, Mary and Martha, and they were very close. And Martha says to Jesus when he does arrive late, he says, if you'd been here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. And look what Jesus said. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. That sounds like an anomaly. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Martha, do you believe this? Jesus said, if our faith is in him, when we die, yet we will live. In living, we shall never die. What did he mean? Well, folks, there's a sense in which we don't die. We want to say everyone dies. No, Jesus contradicts us. Not everyone dies. Our bodies die, but our souls continue to live. And where do our souls live? Look at 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul is speaking of living and dying, living for Christ and dying in this passage. That's his subject. And he sums it up this way, 2 Corinthians 5.8. We are of good courage and would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. What's he saying? How, how are we away from the body? We die. And where are we? At home with the Lord. I love reading what Paul wrote in his letter to the church at Philippi. Probably his favorite church. As he debated, he was in jail in Rome. He was in a prison cell. Picture this. And they write him concerned. They know he's under the threat of death. They know it's likely that Caesar will kill this great apostle. And so he's in this jail cell. And he's writing this letter of comfort back to Philippi. And this debate goes on. Do you know what the debate is? Would it be better for me to go home to glory? Or would it be better for me to live and go to Philippi? Now let's look at it. Philippians 1.20. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed. Notice he doesn't pray for deliverance from prison. He doesn't pray that somehow the Lord would save him from all this. From being condemned. What's he pray for? I pray I will not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Whether I'm alive or dead. He goes on and says that. 
That should be our prayer every day, people. As we walk out the door, may I not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If it brings martyrdom, so be it. If it brings glory, so be it. So let's read on. May I not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body by life or by death. And then he says this, for, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Wow. Can you say that? For me to die? That's gain. That's gain. We've thought that of others sometimes. We see somebody, we say, you know what? The world would be better off if they had just died. <laughs> that would be gain. No, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying, it's my gain if I die. And then he goes on. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet, which shall I choose? You've got to love this. Which shall I choose? I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more than necessary on your account. What a debate. But it, it preaches this doctrine. If I die, my soul goes to be with Christ. And that's what I would desire. That's what he's saying. Now, with that in mind, keep that in mind, though. Jesus talking to Martha. The passages we've just read, that's throughout the New Testament. Now, let's read Revelation 24 through 6. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and I saw for it and for the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshiped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. Now, hang on. Let's understand what he's saying. That is the same thousand years which Satan was restrained. And we're seeing there what Jesus promised in John 11 and Paul taught in his letters. These are believers who die. He's seeing believers who have died in Christ and are already home in glory. They're still alive. They didn't die. Notice he says he saw their souls. Mark that down. He didn't see their resurrected bodies. That physical resurrection that will happen when Christ returns has not happened. Their souls are with the Lord. They're just going to see resurrected bodies be body and soul again when Christ returns. Where are they right now? What is it? February 5th, 2023? Where are they right now? Where's my father? Where's my mother? Where's my brother Mike? I can tell you they're reigning with Christ in glory. They're reigning with Christ in glory. Now John calls this in this passage the first resurrection. Now, you can understand why it does. Just stop and think about it. This puzzled me for years. And then I finally saw it. They've been raised from death. They've been raised from martyrdom immediately to life in glory. It's a type of spiritual resurrection. It's not like a resurrection that has already taken place. And this is every believer, not just martyrs. Those who have not been marked by un- the unbelief of the world. Those They don't die. Their body dies, but they go to be with the Lord. 
Now this time they're not pictured under the altar. Praying for justice. They're not pictured with Christ singing hymns of redemption. Here in verse 20, did you notice it? They're pictured with thrones. Those thrones are symbolic. They simply mean, they don't mean they sit on actual thrones. It means they're reigning with Christ. It's symbolic language, a symbolic vision. Declaring that the saints who have departed this earth are now reigning in glory. They've been raised from the scorn of this world. They've been raised from being ostracized and humiliated to the highest place, reigning with Christ in glory. There are those who interpret this as an actual physical resurrection that takes place on the return of Christ initiating a thousand-year reign of Christ on earth. I used to think that. I wrestled with this passage for years, folks. About 12 years ago, it really hit me. The Lord really showed me through his spirit what this means. You see, if you, if you say that this is the return of Christ and a thousand-year reign of Christ is initiated then, you have several problems in the rest of scripture the second coming always always brings about a universal resurrection of believers and unbelievers followed immediately by a final judgment that's the pattern all through scripture this would be the only place in scripture that we see two different physical resurrections divided by a thousand years the believers are resurrected in this other view the Believers are resurrected and they reign a thousand years on earth with Christ. And then after that, the unbelievers are resurrected. But there's even a more troubling thing. After the literal thousand year reign of Christ, if you accept that interpretation, after that thousand year reign, and we're going to see this next week, Satan is unbound. He's released and given full reign and almost absolutely eradicates the the church all through the earth you see the view that those who have died in Christ are now reigning with him in glory and that Satan has been restrained by Jesus Christ just restrained that makes sense and we've already got a vision there's another vision of it we've seen this before look at Matthew 17 1 through 3 And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to them Moses and Elijah talking with them. Now, Moses and Elijah had died centuries before. They had been physically dead. What were they seeing? Were they seeing an epiphany? No. They were seeing the souls of Moses and Elijah speaking with Jesus. So again, I mean, if you just look through Scripture, you see it over and over and over again. My favorite passage to read when we come to a funeral, when we come to death, is 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. We'll just read a couple of those verses. Paul saying to the people at Thessalonica, we don't want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who have fallen asleep, those that have died, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. 
For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him, with him, with him, with him, from glory, he will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. Now, it's not that he comes back and he finds these saints that have been somewhere else. No, they've been reigning with Christ in glory. It's not only the angels that are going to return with Christ. Our brothers and sisters in Christ that have died over the last 2,000 years, they're returning with him. They're why? Because they're alive. They're home in glory. That's why we don't mourn like the world mourns. The world comes to that and says, this person's gone, they're dead, never see them again, never hear them again. Story's over. That's not how we go to the cemetery. <laughs> There's far, far more to be told about this story. So I'll ask you this morning, I'll ask what Jesus asked Martha. Do you believe this? It's an important question. Because if you don't, you've called Jesus a liar. You've called him a liar. You've said, Jesus, I don't believe because this is what Jesus says. So what do we do with this? Very quickly, what do we do with this? Why did Jesus give this to John? Why did he keep showing him heaven all through the book of Revelation? Why did he keep showing the saints? This is the fourth time he's showing him the saints in glory. Well, think about it. John was in exile on Patmos. He had been dipped in boiling oil, tradition tells us. But we know for sure he was exiled. He was exiled away from his precious church, away from his friends, away from his family. The churches of Asia to which this letter is addressed, they were suffering. There had been martyrs in every single one of those seven churches. It was, it's also addressed to the church of the last 2,000 years. That has been rocked and rocked and rocked again by persecution and exile, being ostracized. He gave us these visions to keep us from despair. Saying, don't you despair with this. Don't despair with it. Look at where you're headed. Look at where you're going. We sang this morning. You may not have realized it. We sang in the God of Abraham praise about being on a pilgrimage. Where's the pilgrimage to? It's not to Jerusalem. It's to the new Jerusalem. It's to heaven itself. So that when we come to die, whether it's by persecution or martyrdom or whether it's through natural, when we come to die, we won't despair. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will not fear you, death. For I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Oh, save us from this. Now you might... You might think, well, you know, you might think, well, John, am I supposed to leave here this morning with a death wish? <laughs> am I supposed to leave here saying, well, I hope I die today? You know, no, no. Go back to Paul's debate with himself. When he was in jail in Rome, he had suffered much. 
ostracized, jailed, beaten. Once he was left for dead. He was in jail at the moment being threatened with death by Caesar. He really did want to go be with Christ. He was not all afraid of death. But he loved the church at Philippi. He loved what God had called him to do. He wanted to go back, continue. Let me keep doing what I'm doing. Those were the decisions. And you, you may not be the Apostle Paul. You may not be a minister. But let me tell you, we've preached this. We've preached this and preached this and preached this. All of us were called of God. And not just, not just to be Christians. We're called to be salt and light. In the world around us, we talk about it all the time, right? Wherever that world be, is it in the bank? Is it in the classroom, whether we're in the third grade or whether we're teaching in the classroom? Is it in the courtroom where we're lawyers? Is it out of being a plumber, a carpenter? We read through Scripture that God equips us and he calls us to our vocations. We're about a holy work. We don't leave if it's not, you know what? Our service to Christ is, it doesn't end here with this worship on Sunday morning. We're not about to walk out and say, okay, I've been a Christian on Sunday morning. We walk out to our jobs every day. Insurance, investments, plumbing carpentry teaching we walk out called of God to that vocation to serve him God what would you have me to do this day and it's not that you it's not that you have a set of praying praying hands on your desk it's not that you walk around with your friends say let us pray before the tennis match let us pray no no It's about service. It's about serving him where we are. I had a dear friend who had a chronic disease. And from time to time, he would end up in the hospital near death because of this disease. He believed Jesus. He looked forward to being with Christ in glory. I was a young minister. He was an older man. He would go to the hospital thinking, we'd talk about it. He'd go to the hospital thinking, maybe it's today. Talk to me about it. He was in his 70s. But even at that age, with his illness, this man was invaluable in this little community in which we lived. And he had a powerful testimony. And the church was in dire need at that time. And they were in need of him and his work. And God left him there for like 15 more years. And they were great years, and it made a difference in that community. You see, he hadn't finished. God hadn't called him home. He said, it's not time to come to heaven yet. It's not time to come to glory. Your day's coming, but you stay at your post. John Wesley was once asked, if you knew you would die at 12 o'clock tomorrow night, tomorrow night, how would you spend the intervening time? And his answer, I read it just this week. 
Why, just as I intend to spend it. I would preach tonight at Gloucester and again tomorrow morning. After that, I would ride to Tewksbury, preach in the afternoon, and meet with the society in the evening. I should then repair to my friend Martin's house, as he expects me, converse with his family, pray with his family, retire to my room at 10 o'clock, commend myself to my heavenly father, lie down and sleep, and I'd wake up in glory. That's what I would do. How would you answer that question? What if you knew you were going to die? Monday night. Would you go to work tomorrow morning? Now, some of us would probably change what we're doing to adjust to family, to adjust. Well, God calls us to that. He calls us to be fathers and mothers, sons and daughters, grandparents. What I'm saying is, Would you be at your post where God has called you to be? Would you stay at it, whatever it is that he's called you to do? Paul, when he was debating, oh, Father, I want to come home, but I want to be at my post. I love what you've called me to do and I want to be faithful wow it's time to celebrate it's time to come to the Lord's table you might be thinking if you don't understand it you might be thinking you know I don't know that I'm ready to go home and face God have I done enough to be saved You'll never do enough to be saved. Christ did enough for you to be saved. That's why we can go home. We can stay in the courts of heaven. We can go home to glory. And when somebody asks, what are you doing here? How could you be here? Christ died for me. It's not my works. However long I'm engaged, it's not my works that cancel out my sin. I can pile all of my weight, all the the weight of my works on the scales and it doesn't overcome the sin that's on the other side. Only the weight of Jesus and his blood could do that. What a great hymn to sing as we come to the Lord's table. Jesus, thy blood in righteousness, hymn number 520. Let's stand as we sing.